My name is Patricia Kathleen, and this podcast series will contain interviews I conduct with women, female-identified, and non-binary individuals regarding their professional stories and personal narrative as it relates to their perspective. This podcast is designed to hold a space for all individuals to learn from their counterparts, regardless of age, status, or industry. We intend to transparently investigate the evolving global dialogue regarding underrepresented figures in all industries across the USA and abroad. By hosting these stories and conversations, we aim to contribute to the changing platform and representation of these individuals for the future. If you are enjoying this podcast series, be sure to check out our subsequent series called Roundtable with Patricia Kathleen, where we talk with a panel of guests regarding key topics that arise in these individual interviews. You can subscribe to all of our podcast series on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean, as well as our website, patriciacathleen.com. You can also contact me directly via this website or through my media website, wild.agency. That's W-I-L-D-E dot agency. Thanks for listening. Now let's start the conversation. Time and we'll be off to the races. I said your name right, Ariel Garten. You did. You're okay. actually like the only person ever. So great job. Oh, good. I wonder if My Little Mermaid, like, or the, the Little Mermaid, if Ariel, is that how people like to say it? I you say, say Ariel. Ariel. Oh, I say you Ariel. You say Ariel, which is the right way that nobody ever does it. So, yay. I'm glad. Okay. Let me make sure. Yes. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. I am your host, Patricia, and today I am sitting down with Ariel Garten. Ariel is the founder of Muse, which is a tech startup, a device that gives you real-time feedback during and post-meditation. You can locate it online at www.choosemuse.com. Welcome, Ariel. Thank you, Patricia. It is a joy to be here. I'm excited to climb through what you're doing. I'm really excited to have you on today. For everyone listening, I will read a brief bio on Ariel. Before I do that, though, a quick roadmap of today's podcast will follow the trajectory that all of those in these series do. Namely, we will first unpack Ariel's academic and brief professional life so that we have a basis of a platform understanding where she came to developing Muse. Then we will look at um, unpacking Muse and um, the device, what it does, uh, the data that it captures. We'll also get into the nuts and bolts of her um, enterprise, which is the who, what, when, where, why, and how for all of you entrepreneurs out there. You guys like to hear about foundership, funding. We'll get into all of those logistics, and then we'll turn our efforts towards looking at the ethos and um, kind of the philosophy behind the company. Then we'll look towards goals that um, Ariel might have towards the next one to three years, how she's kind of reconceptualizing goals. Though That dialogue has changed for a lot of you um, given the recent pandemic, and it's interesting to hear for all of us about that change. And then we will wrap everything up with advice that Ariel may have for those of you who want to get involved in what she's doing or perhaps emulate some of her career success. So a quick bio on Ariel before I start peppering her with questions. Ariel Garten is probably one of the most interesting people you will meet. She is a psychotherapist, neuroscientist, mom, former fashion designer, and the female founder and visionary of an amazing and highly successful tech startup, Muse. Muse tracks your brain during meditation to give you real-time feedback on your meditation, guiding you into the zone and solving problem most of us have when starting a meditation practice. 
Muse lets you know when you are doing it right, when Ariel is not reading brains literally or investing in, inspiring and advising other tech startups and women in biz. You can find her on stages across the world from TED to MIT to South by Southwest. She inspires people to understand that they can accomplish anything they want by learning what goes on in their own mind. Ariel is also the co-host of the Untangle podcast. So Ariel, I want to climb through all of that. You have such a prolific history and um, what isn't in your bio that I do know from our research is that you have even more history um, on the back end before Muse was uh, into reality. So I'm hoping right now you can unpack some of your um, professional and academic background to develop like your own personal platform. Sure. So my whole life I've been kind of split between arts and sciences. When I was a teenager in high school, I excelled at the arts, I excelled at sciences, I had a job in a research lab doing embryonic stem cell research on knockout mice in the 90s, Um, and I also had a tiny clothing line that I sold on consignment to stores in downtown Toronto where I lived. So I was always kind of parlaying between the world of art and the world of science. And back in the 90s, people would say, well, you can't be an artist and a scientist, you you have to choose, you can't Mm -hmm. do both. And when I went to school, uh, when I went to university, I chose to go for neuroscience because I felt like if you went to arts, you couldn't go back into the sciences. You had to continue on with the sciences and then keep doing the arts on the side. So in university, I studied neuroscience at the University of Toronto. I also had an art gallery that I ran. And then as soon as I graduated, um, I opened a clothing store in basically the front of my house. I was just like, okay, I need to do this clothing thing because I've done the science thing for four years. Yeah. I then continued to work in research labs part-time while I ran a clothing line that what I was selling across North America and a store, retail store in downtown Toronto, all of this being entirely unable to sew. So I was like, I'll just start a clothing line, even though I have no idea how to sew, but I love fashion and I can figure it out. Yeah. And my family business uh, was very, very small scale real estate. So I was also kind of helping out the family business at the same time. So I always had these multiple career trajectories going simultaneously. I was fascinated by all of them and always kind of felt like I could do whatever I put my mind to. So um, in my mid-20s, I started collaborating with Dr. Steve Mann. He's one of the inventors of the wearable computer, and he had an early brain computer interface system, and I began working in his laboratory, working on uh, basically concerts that you made with your mind, these artistic endeavors with real scientific information from the brain, and really started to marry my art and science approach to the world. And uh, from there, I became inspired to take this technology that was letting you literally interact with the world directly with your brain. It was a brain computer interface and try to take it to market and create my own business. And that's how myself and my two co-founders, Chris Amini and Trevor Coleman created Muse. Fantastic. So you have two co-founders that kind of dropped us into the next question that I have, which is the top three um, tiers of logistics, which is co-founders, funding, and year you launched. So I started working in Steve's lab in 2002, um, 2002, 2003. And 
in those early days, we were creating concerts using this early brain-computer interface system, and I began collaborating at that point with Chris Amini. Chris was Steve's master's student, and he was just the most brilliant engineer you could ever meet, and also had an incredible understanding about humanity and art and the soul. And so as I started to think that this technology could come out of the lab, I got together with him as the CTO of the company and Trevor Coleman, who was my boyfriend at the time's best friend. And the three of us founded Muse. But before founding Muse, we spent many years playing around in Trevor's basement and in Steve's laboratory, figuring out what this technology could do. And so probably 2007, we really agreed that yes, we're forming a startup. Um, in 2009, we incorporated and had our first big project, which was at the Vancouver 2010 Winter Olympics. Um, we, the first funding that we had came in 2012. Um, I, I, rec I was the CEO of the company and recognized that we would need to raise funds. We got paid for Olympics projects. We were able to bootstrap for many years. And when we started to raise funding, I went out first to New York, the Boston, San Francisco to raise funds. And ultimately, probably our first, yeah, our first round was $4 million from FFEC in New York. And our very first investor was actually Chad Mentang, who was at that point Google's jolly good fellow. He was the guy who started Google's meditation program, also Search Inside Yourself. Um, nice. Since then, yes, it was amazing. So since then, we've raised, I personally raised uh, 18 $2 million as the CEO of the company um, from, I guess, 2012 until 2015. Um, in 2015, I stepped down from maternity leave and uh, brought in another CEO. And to date, the company's raised probably around $30 million. Oh, wow. That is amazing. What round are you guys on? Uh, moving into round C. Brilliant. That's amazing. I mean, and it's, it's an incredible, I think there are a lot of people that get to um, a certain position and, and phase out, particularly with that kind of longevity in a career, you know, you can kind of, very few founders anymore are kind of staying on and hanging around past that point. Um, I'm wondering, in the beginning, when you said you, you were going to, I don't know if it was trade shows or in 2009 or um, in 2012, when you started kind of getting out there, what was the gradual change of the product or was there a story? Like how did it, you know, companies grow with funding traditionally on a lot of different levels, but I'm interested in, uh, before we describe the product as, as it is now, the device, what was the original um, product or device like? So this is pretty funny. Originally we started with a technology and a technology that was in search of a solution. So we had this device that let you put an electrode on the back of your head and by focusing or relaxing, you could change some element, sound, light, et cetera. So initially we thought we were gonna go after thought controlled computing. As you shifted your brain mm. state, it would allow you to control the lighting in a room or control you know, a cursor on a computer screen. Yeah. And we did a lot of demos and experiences showing people that you could literally shift your brain state and make music or brighten a light. The project that we did at the Vancouver 2010 Winter Olympics let people in Vancouver control the lights on the CN Tower, Canadian Parliament Buildings, and Niagara Falls with their brain from across the country. So we had tens of thousands of people nice. literally interacting with the, the lighting on these massive icons with their mind. 
So when we came off the Olympics, we were on a high and we're like, we can do anything we want. You know, we just succeeded at the Olympics. And so we went on to try to thought control everything. We made like a thought controlled toaster and which was really stupid, but it was a fun trick and a thought controlled Mm -hmm. beer tap, which is awesome to have at Christmas parties, but like (laughs) not really useful in real life. Um, You'd focus on it. It would pour. You would relax or clench your teeth. It would stop pouring. Um, We made all sorts of great thought control things like, you know, trying to grasp, but what is it that we're really going to do with this? And that's when we sort of had that light bulb moment that it wasn't about letting people control the world outside them. It was about the fact that this technology could actually show you what was going on in your own mind and give you real-time feedback on your brain. Because as we were teaching people to focus and relax so that they could, you know, make a light bulb go brighter, what we were really doing was taking these internal states that were intangible and making them tangible and visible, showing you when you're focused, showing you when you're relaxed, and doing so essentially giving you bio or neuro feedback to teach your brain and body to do that more. And that's when we kind of had the recognition that this was going to be most useful for the world as a meditation tool. Because meditation is this amazing activity that is so powerful for you, but most people don't really know how to do it and they're not good at it per se, Mm -hmm. because you don't know what's going on in your mind. And there's nobody showing you what's going on in your mind and telling you when you're in the right zone and when you're not. And we had a technology that could really do that. Well, and there was a year when I, I feel like there was a year, it may have been a couple of years or a day, but um, where Silicon Valley began leading this or Silicon Valley-like areas started leading this charge um, at, where they had meditation rooms developed in Google, you know, in places like that, um, where it felt like it took meditation out of this Eastern philosophy, yogi realm and placed it like squarely into like productivity, corporate America, like this is now like a break room moment. And I'm wondering when your device, um, when it switched over into like focusing on the meditation and inward movements um, and recognition moment and how well that paralleled with you think the industry kind of accepting this new form of meditation being just as important um, for productivity and things like that in the workplace as a break. We were so lucky, we completely followed that curve. So as I mentioned, our first investor in 2012 was Chad Menteng, the guy who literally made Google's meditation program. Mm -hmm. Um, Before 2012, when somebody would ask us what we were building, we felt like we had to say it was a cognitive trainer. And our really like our early decks and our early pitches all had pictures of brains with like big muscles on them going like, this is going to make your mind strong. It'll help you focus. and then people would do the demo. And on a rare occasion, someone would be asked like, is this meditation? And we'd be like, do you like meditation? They'd be like, yes, I meditate. And we'd be like, it is meditation. Just don't tell anyone. Yeah, yeah, it's true. <laughs> we all had this like, you know, whispered background conversation. Mm-hmm. And then over time, I think for us, what I really kind of count as the tipping point was meditation being on the cover of Time magazine. Mm -hmm. It was around 2013. There was a photo of a woman on the cover of Time magazine and Time got in trouble because it was a very, you know, white woman doing this, but she was sitting there with her eyes closed in a lotus position meditating. And that to me really marked the moment when the world took notice. And all of a sudden you had big CEOs meditating and athletes meditating and celebrities talking about it. And then the, you know, first the kind of vanguard corporate meditators like Google, and then the slow trickle of every company having a meditation program that they'd offer to their staff. And we 
just by chance, we're entirely in tune with that wave nice. and we're able to capitalize on it from 2012 moving forward. Yeah. That auspicious, right? I mean, I think it would have done well without, but like I said, when you mentioned into cognitive training and things like that, I think that's esoteric and confusing as well, you know, and it's funny when you have to fight against terms um, like that, just to kind of make sure that you're alleviating um, uh, communication gaps or um, bigotries. It's fun to kind of look at those things. So now let's get into the device. Let's talk about um, its structure. I, I mean, for everyone who's looking to get a picture of it, obviously, if you jump on um, www.choosemuse.com, you're going to get some of that. But if you can kind of describe for everyone listening right now, briefly, where it sits, what it looks like, and um, how it, uh, like as an experience as a user, I come to your house, I sit down, we put this thing on me, what's going on? Sure. So Muse is basically like a Fitbit for your brain. So it's a slim little headband that sits on your forehead and it tracks your brain activity during meditation and gives you real-time feedback to know when you're focused and when your mind is wandering. So you would slip on the Muse, it would connect to an app on your phone, you'd plug in your headphones, and then as you meditated, you'd be able to hear the sound of your mind through guiding sounds. And the metaphor we use is your mind is like the weather. So when you're thinking or distracted, you hear it as stormy. And as you come to quiet, focused attention, it quiets the storm. So you're getting real-time feedback, letting you know when your mind is wandering and cueing you back into the meditation zone and then reinforcing you for staying there, reinforcing you to that state of calm. Then after the fact, you get data, charts, graphs, scores, things that show you what your brain was doing moment to moment and really help you track the progress of your practice. Yeah, it is exactly like a Fitbit and it's exciting. I mean, it, it almost just lends to, I don't know if it's the human mind or the American human mind or the entrepreneurial mind, but I already when you pitch it that way or when you describe it, I start thinking, oh, I get into training it more. I, I have areas I want to tap into immediately. It's like this, you know, um, nice little green pill that I could like do something and, and take and, and like focus and train or even like a muscle. Um and focus on that. Do you find that people immediately, the, the people who congregate towards the idea are those that want to tap into certain resources in their brains most quickly, or is it just the curiosity? It, people come from both directions. So, you know, people who are performance oriented, obviously love the performance aspect of it that you can measure and through measure improving. There are people who are very experienced meditators and they come at this more from the perspective of being a consciousness explorer, of understanding the process of the mind, of being able to hone the observation of the mind through a new mirror on their internal state. So there's lots of different experiences that people get out of it. Um, the app is completely customizable. So you can either use the real-time feedback during your experience, or you can turn off all the feedback and just after the fact, see what your brain was doing through your own silent meditation. We also started with the brain and now have sensors for the heart, the breath, and the body. So you mm. can hear the sound of your heart, like the beating of a drum, and be able to track its increases and decreases and really learn your heart's rhythms. You can find stillness in your body and track your movement. Um, there's breath patterns. And now there's also hundreds and hundreds of guided meditations that you can use along with the device to actually track your brain, heart, breath, and body during your guided meditations as well. And are those developed by or in, in collaboration with the, your company, Muse? 
Yeah. So we have dozens of top teachers from all around the world who build meditations for performance, stress, anxiety. We have a cancer collection that Mayo's currently testing um, for finding morning joy, for sleep, and on and on. Nice. What is, so I want to, you, you have a topic that you've addressed in the past and I kind of want you to enumerate it on for our audience. Um, what is the, the mindset of an entrepreneur? Like um, it, how does that relate to the collection of the data that you've looked at? Ah, that's a fascinating question. So the mindset of an entrepreneur is different than the mindset of an average individual. And the mindset of an entrepreneur has to be one that A, is willing to handle a whole lot of risk and B, is able to have emotional flexibility because being an entrepreneur, you have so many demands on you and a lot of those are emotional demands. You know, you're, you're at the high of success, you're at the low of your business crashing, you're at the moment before funding. So you need to be able to navigate all those smoothly. And you are typically not afraid in the same ways that other people are afraid. This goes back to the risk piece. So one of the things that I noticed in myself with the mindset of an entrepreneur was that I really believed I would be able to accomplish whatever I wanted. And, you know, occasionally I'd have thoughts that came in, come into my mind, like we all do, of like, oh, that's going to be too hard. You're not good enough. You know, somebody will judge you for it. But I was very easily able to overcome those thoughts. I was very able, easily dis- able to say, you're just a thought that doesn't matter. I'm not going to let that hold me back. And I was able to move out into the world without really being held back by a fear that something wouldn't work, without being held back by the thoughts in my own mind. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's a fundamental feature of entrepreneurs because the people who aren't entrepreneurs are the people who have a great idea and then just get overwhelmed by the thought of doing it, get mm-hmm. bogged down in the feelings that it won't work get held back and not knowing what to do next. Yeah. An entrepreneur will just move with it. So how would an entrepreneur most quickly utilize um, Muse? What would be, do you think, one of the first steps of using it? Is it just articulating areas that they could tap into through meditation? Or what do you think, given, you know, the the dialogue you just created about the entrepreneurial um, personality and mindset, how would it be most beneficial or collaborated with using Muse right off the bat? Sure. So we have literally hundreds and hundreds of entrepreneurs that use Muse and top CEOs and CEOs will buy them for, you know, their top executives and Muse together. Um, so it's, it's something that entrepreneurs have really tapped into. So one of the reasons is the idea that the thoughts in your head don't need to govern how you live. So most of us mm. just have the thoughts in our head and we assume that they're supposed to be there. Like, oh, this isn't going to work out or I'm not good enough or, you know, this is going to be too big for me. And we just assume that that's the truth because that's the thought in our head. As an entrepreneur, you learn how to move your mind away from those thoughts and overcome them by taking actions. And that's a big part of what Muse teaches you to do. Muse cues you when your thoughts are wandering and then gives you a cue to say, hey, you don't need to follow that thought. You can come back and focus on the thing in front of you. You can move your mind away from that and focus instead on something you care about or the task in front of you. So it helps you shift into that mind state of possibility. It lets you move out of your negative thoughts and into a neutral space. And it also significantly increases your productivity because every time your thoughts wander away, that's a little procrastination. That's a micro distraction. With Muse, you get very good at saying like, nope, distraction, back to focus, distraction, back to focus. And then on the emotional piece, what meditation teaches you to do 
is to ride your emotions without getting bogged down by them. So Mm. you might, you know, have just lost a big deal and you might, you know, feel a lot of emotion in your body. And what you learn to do with meditation is to observe that emotion, you know, see the sensations and feel the sensations that it brings in your body without ramping the thought cycle in your head. So it's not like, oh my God, I just lost that deal. Oh my God, I feel terrible. Whoa, that's really bad. And cycle, cycle down. With meditation, you, you observe the sensations without getting sucked into the feelings in, in a way that's going to drag you down with a negative feedback loop between thought, feeling, thought, feeling, thought, feeling. So as an entrepreneur, it becomes an incredibly valuable tool to ride through the lows and to let yourself relish the highs. And I'm interested about the feedback that it provides through the app um, and and collecting that data. What would um, the average user do with that feedback? Does it help growth? I mean, if you have the cues on, obviously there should be some in the moment change and, you know, change of of, um, mental status. But I'm wondering, accumulating that feedback, do you see how quickly you were able to return to focus in meditation? What, what would someone apply the feedback to and what all is collected? Sure. So uh, when you do a mind meditation, what you're looking at is the times when your mind has wandered and the times when you return. And we celebrate um, the ability to notice that your mind has wandered and to return back to a place of focused attention and calm. We also reinforce and celebrate staying in that calm spot. So it's okay that your mind wanders, all of our minds do. And what you want to do, say like, nope, I'm going to come back to focus. And what you end up seeing over time is a graph that starts looking really jagged. You've got lots of you know, distractions and your mind's bouncing all over the place. And as you progress in your practice, that curve gets smoother and smoother and lower and lower as you're spending more and more time in focus calm. So when you look back through your graphs, you can identify the things that trigger you the kinds of thoughts that distract you or the sounds that might have been in your environment. So you can become very aware of your internal state and you can also really acutely see your progress over time. And you can then also see, you know, okay, this was a great meditation today. What was I doing differently? What, what does this mean? How do I reinforce this in the future? Yeah. With the heart meditation, you're actually seeing when your heart rate increases and decreases moment by moment. And you're learning the things that will get your heart to speed up things that cause you stress and anxiety, and things that get your heart to slow down. And by seeing the patterns of your heart, you learn the kind of relaxation and breathing patterns that get you into optimal HRV and an optimal, beautiful, smooth sinusoidal rhythm and allow you to uh, relax your body more effectively. Right. And when you say that, I picture things that more than likely everyone listening has had glimpses into either the Buddhist monk that was hooked up to electrodes that kept, you know, his heart rate at a certain way or the deep sea um, diver who she was, you know, controlling heart rate so that she could dive deeper and things like that. Is that kind of the area that you're headed towards in this kind of lowering of the heart rate or raising it back up? Is it this mind body connection and control? Yes. So you learn, you learn that mind-body connection and that mind-body connection is called interoception. It's the ability to sensitively understand your internal state. And uh, there are studies that demonstrate that people who have improved interoception actually have less stress because you're much more able to sensitively understand where your body is at, check in on your body. And then if you notice stress, tension, increased heart rate, say, Hey, I have an exercise that I've learned, like a breathing exercise or guided meditation, that I know will bring me back to that state of calm. 
So we start to become master self-regulators, noticing where we're at, having a set of tools to use at that moment, applying them, and then shifting into the state that we choose to be in. Yeah, I love that. It's perfect. Um, master self-regulators. You know, that's the goal. I think the key, right? To what everyone, I'm sure nobody hears that and doesn't think that sounds fantastic. Um, I'm wondering, you you talk a little bit um, in in some of your the, the numerous different speaking engagements you've had about how to be empowered in your own mind, and I'm you know that it's that's a beautiful statement, um, but it's it's more theory than practical you know engagement for me. And I'm wondering since this is kind of tying into that idea of um, being master over over one's um, own mind body relationship, if you can kind of enumerate further on what you feel um, the empowerment um, to be empowered in one's own mind looks like in reality, like some of the benefits beyond being able to connect with stress and therefore lower it, you know, the, the mind-body connection. But even further than that, some of the, the practicality of what that looks like. Sure. So being empowered in your own mind to me means not being at the behest of the crazy thoughts that, you know, consume most of us much of the time. You know, most of us just go through our lives with our brain generating a bunch of content in there that often makes us feel unhappy, like we're not good enough, like things aren't good enough, and generally, you know, frustrated and not feeling great. Um, our brain is constantly telling us that makes us feel things that make us feel a little bit shitty. And mm -hmm. frankly, there is no reason for that to be the, you know, existence of your life. There's no reason it needs to be that way. What you learn in meditation is to change your relationship with your thoughts. So rather than being sucked in by them and just listening to all the stuff it tells you and assuming that that's what you need to hear, you actually learn that you can rise above your thoughts, you can create metacognition, you can observe them, and you can make choices about where your brain goes. You can make choices about the contents of your own mind. And when you start to do that, you can now start to orient yourself towards the positive. You can now shut down those negative narratives that weren't serving you. You can now begin to recognize that the narratives that you had about yourself probably aren't true and you can choose new narratives. It becomes an incredibly liberating way to live. And as you start to make better choices about the contents of your own mind, your body follows suit. So you start to sort of shut down the negative narratives that keep you small and, you know, frustrated. You start opening yourself up to freedom and joy and possibility and the, the emotional experiences that come with it. Mm -hmm. And meditation, taking you out of your head and putting you in the present moment, really brings an aliveness to your life, to the things that are right in front of you and the things that, that are here and real rather than the problems that we worry about that probably will never happen. And so it's, it's an incredibly empowered place to be. Yeah. And when you said, you know, um, change the relationship with your own thoughts, a piece of me, I, I felt like a piece of that was a description or the, that is rather a piece of a description of happiness, you know, of the human condition to be, um, to change the relationship with your own thoughts is to change ones that are um, in disparate nature or causing discomfort. And so to change that back into something, it sounds like a control over one's own happiness, which is um, 
exciting to the human condition, you know, across the globe. I don't, I don't think this just approaches one particular genre of, of person, though I, I'm sure that there are many that utilize it better than others. But changing the relationship with your own thoughts is, is a power that I think a lot of people come to when they start meditation and don't realize that will be one of the benefits. You know, it's yeah, it's an extraordinary power. It makes such a difference in your life. You know, most of us are living in self-created jails in our own mind, mm -hmm. um, getting caught up in thoughts that truly create our own suffering. And it just doesn't need to be that way. Yeah. Who are the clients that that Muse has so far reached? You talked about CEOs and people that are really looking at it as, you know, I mean, one of your, the jolly good fellow, you know, he's, he's brought it up with the Google meditation and stuff like that. But um, who else, do you have industries or populations that have really tapped into being clients and who do you see it going towards next? Sure. So there are literally hundreds of thousands of people that use Muse regularly and it's from, you know, moms and awesome everyday people um, to corporates. So as I mentioned, you know, we'll have CEOs that do it with their exec. We have corporate programs, um, healthcare. So we have over 200 studies that have been done with Muse, um, both as a meditation tool and as a clinical grade EEG. So we have, you know, whole hospital systems that have been um, engaged in testing Muse. Uh, Mayo Clinic has written papers on breast cancer patients awaiting surgery using Muse. Um, we have thousands of doctors and clinicians that recommend it to their patients. Uh, oh, and then athletes, um, pro golfers, skaters, footballers, Olympic soccer teams, um, Olympic uh, swimmers like really quite across the board so we've we've been we've been very very lucky that both from just average people who want to learn how to meditate to you know really top experts all have been able to find value in the tool definitely and i, I can't imagine anyone who wouldn't be able to find value in it um even children you know it, young not children but adolescents and and people who are just learning to have that dialogue I think that there's such an opportunity there with young minds that people don't necessarily look at. And to that end, I'm wondering um, how young, the youngest age group that you know that studies with Muse have been done on. So uh, Muse used to be able to be used for anybody, but now we are GDPR compliant, which is Europe's privacy standard. Um, so we say Muse is not for anybody under 16. Um, certainly I've seen you know photos of people using Muse with their very young children, um, though. According to the label, it's not 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 till over sixteen. Um, there have been studies done using Muse in schools. The Denver School Board did one. Uh, Kansas State University did a study of grade eight students using Muse, and they saw a seventy-two percent decrease in kids being sent to the principal's office after using Muse in their classroom. Yeah, and that's kind of what I was suspecting. You know, I think a lot about um, some of these different ailments that afflict children who tend to be disturbing. Um, the classroom environment or group settings and it's more just about the, the therapies applied, the social therapies applied to these children are very much so the feedback that it sounds like Muse would provide. It's about being in touch with the thoughts and um, the relationship with the thoughts, which we just clarified. And so that kind of feedback sounds like it would be instrumental. Um, what is the, when someone gets on, how much can they explore um, on your website? Like what are the price points and how does one go about purchasing it? Where, what phase is all of that in? Uh, so Muse is in market and has been for um, since 2014. Uh, we now have a so we have two devices, Muse Two, 
um, which gives you real-time feedback on your heart, breath, body, and brain during meditation. And then we have a new device that we just launched, which is Muse S. One of the things that we noticed is people were using Muse before going to bed to help them sleep. And so we now built this beautiful purpose-built device that does all the same things as Muse 2. And it also gives you guided meditations and real-time feedback um, in a way that's designed to help you fall asleep faster. So it's a very soft, comfortable band that you wear in bed to help you fall asleep. Um, and then we're building more and more sleep features that are going to be released over the next year. Mm-hmm. So Muse 2 is somewhere around 250 bucks, and Muse, uh, Muse S is somewhere around 350 Nice. So not going to break the bank, you know? I mean, not inexpensive, but for the feedback it's providing. And given, can you use one device, I'm assuming, for different family members or it, different yes. individuals, or does everyone? Okay. So you can change application. Yeah. So we typically see, you know, device, mom brings the device home, dad starts using it, kids start meditating, and now you have the whole family using the one device together. Absolutely. That's so exciting. I'm wondering to that end, given that you just came out with the Muse S, um, what goals does Muse have on the horizon between the next one to three years? And has there been any conversation of application between the global dialogue about the pandemic and Muse? Or um, has that kind of been something that it's just obviously addressing within the functionality of the device? Or has the company come out and kind of looked towards efforts as to have a dialogue with that? Oh, we're definitely dialoguing with it. So since the start of the pandemic, we've obviously seen a massive increase in Muse usage, both people purchasing new devices, buying them as gifts, and people who had Muses really starting to use them very, very regularly. And so we're really looking to how we can build more support and content to help support pandemic specifically. We have a collection of actually free content available to anyone called our SOS Calm Collection with guided meditations for dealing with uncertainty, working at home, um, etc. And then we also have monthly challenges that we run with both musers and non-musers, where you can be guided through a week of support on a particular topic focused around COVID. So it might be finding peace, working from home, um, calming the mind in uncertain times, et cetera. That's fascinating. That's a great idea too. A monthly challenge, you know, focused around things that are particularly found within it. That's an interesting take on it. I think that a lot of people have tried to get there, but haven't quite gotten there with a lot of their business endeavors. Monthly challenges are interesting. Um, and are there any other goals f- with the company has that is aside from the, the, the COVID conversation? Are you guys going to come out with new models? What areas are you reaching further into? I feel like, and this might be incredibly naive, um, but like diet and, and certain things that are affecting, you know, the, the greater health um, and relationship certainly would be kind of the trickle down effect that would happen when being in conversation with one's own thoughts and their thought relationship. But has there been any movement towards like diet and exercise or using it, showing people the utility of using it in other major areas of their life? So on our podcast uh, that I co-host with Patricia Carpus called Untangle, we approach questions like diet, relationships, et cetera, every single week with guests in those areas. So, you know, we try to give you more information around how the brain and the mind work. Um, and how to kind of optimize them in relationship to all these topics. And then in our guided content, we also have content specific for different areas, performance, work from home. Um, We have a mindful eating collection. Uh, We have lots of relationship collections. So we also try in the guidance to 
give you new insights and new tools um, to help with specific areas of your life. And then the thing that we're really diving into now is sleep because people don't realize how fundamental sleep is. And with COVID, sleep has really gotten disrupted. Also, as an entrepreneur, sleep gets disrupted as well because you sit there as you're falling asleep and you can't help but think about all of the problems of the day and the problems of tomorrow. And that poor sleep and poor sleep hygiene and poor ability to fall asleep actually depresses your immune system and decreases your emotional self-regulation and cognitive function the next day. So mm-hmm. for us, we're really looking at how we kind of help people optimize this 24-hour cycle, how you can fall asleep more effectively, stay asleep longer, um, have more restful sleep, and then be more cognitively and emotionally capable the next day, do your meditation, you know, enhance them further, sleep well at night and feed forward. Absolutely. And it's key. I think Muse S coming out sounds perfect. I mean, the populations that need sleep most are the ones that always receive it less. It's new parenting, entrepreneurs, people making very heavy handed decisions. There was an in 2005, a report came out that said the average American president in all of our history got about four hours a night. And I was like, no, I need them to get so much more than that. They've got their yes. hand on the button. You know, it's, it was just daunting. These, the more important the position, the less sleep. And it was, in, it was a reverse um, dialogue. It was in conversation to some of the most prolific people that they had discovered in the aughts were these people that got massive amounts of sleep. Some of these founders that were coming out saying, I get like nine hours a night and I can't believe anybody wouldn't. And these were the people that were changing the world at the time. And it was this kind of dialogue back and forth, um, the article was. But um, I think it's it's so crucial, young parents, people like that, um, warriors in all places. You know, I don't believe you have to be the founder of a billion dollar company to be a wildly important individual. And those people in those high stress, high stakes environment are usually not getting sleep. And so I think that feedback is crucial. And I'm glad you brought up your podcast because I'm wondering, um, I haven't had the opportunity to dive in and explore it more. And so for everyone listening, join me in that endeavor. It's called Untangled. And um, I really want to climb into a little bit about that experience, how long it's been running. And also, do you bring uh, users of Muse on to have like an actual conversation with a user? Um, so the podcast actually started with Patricia Carpus. It was a podcast that she had started building. And when she joined our company as the head of content, um, I joined as the co-host and we love doing it because we get to speak to experts, neuroscientists, meditators, top athletes, top artists, and unpack the practices in their life that allow them to be effective. And my particular passion is talking to neuroscientists and through with them, unpacking how the brain works and then how we can use that knowledge and understanding of the brain to be able to optimize our behavior and our functioning. It turns out that a fair number of the people I interview are musers. Um, you know, my, my colleagues and peers in, in neuroscience and in arts or athletics, they tend to actually also use Muse. And often I don't even know that. I interviewed BJ Fogg, a you know, top behaviorist. And when he got on the line, he's like, oh my God, you make Muse? I'm like, oh my God, you know that I made Muse? That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and Dr. Stan Tatkin, he's a top relationship therapist. He was like, I love Muse. I'm like, oh my God, you know what Muse is? He's like, yes, I use it every day. Nice. Um, so yeah. it, it ends up being kind of serendipitous and, and typically a slightly embarrassing moment for me. <laughs> so I'm sitting here like, what am I supposed to do on air? Right. Um, but it's lovely. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's exciting. I'm glad to know that. And I'm glad to know that you guys kind of interview people who you don't know have used it as well, just to garner the information around it without this kind of marketing standpoint. Um, and I look forward to getting on and I look forward to purchasing it because I'm sold. I'm, I'm all in. Um, and I practice meditation and I have for 10 years based on my spiritual following. So I, I, I'm wholeheartedly looking to jump into this. I think it's important for people to understand that regardless of what you practice and how you do, you can always change your re relationship with meditation. You know, there have been um, people who have meditated for 50 years that are constantly changing their relationship with it. And this device sounds like it could um, do that and, and should do that as well. I'm wondering if you can, um, if you can answer our, our final question um, on this series is always one of my favorites. And it's one that people usually think that they won't be able to answer, um, perhaps given that your life has been dedicated to research and, um, and proffering up solutions, you'll be able to um, more easily than one often thinks. But if someone approached you tomorrow, and it's important, um, we didn't get into it today, but you also have a lot of dialogue about women in business. And um, I do want to circle back around one day and pepper you with that because that's the platform that we run um, a lot of our series off at Patricia Kathleen Podcast. But if you were approached tomorrow by um, a woman or a female identified, a non-binary individual, essentially anyone other than um, a, a white cisgendered man, and the person said, listen, I started my career off in um, this wonderful science and I've, I've done a, a prolific amount of work there. And I'm thinking about launching this new device, this tech device feedback company. So something remarkably similar, perhaps not identical to what you've done, but she was headed, they were headed that way. And they said, can you give me your top three pieces of advice? What would those top three pieces be knowing what you know now? Sure, that's easy. So number one is you don't need to know everything. So I think as a founder or an entrepreneur, it can feel daunting when you start a business because you feel like, okay, well, I need to understand finance. I need, in the case of my business, manufacturing, engineering, technology, neuroscience, art, logistics. There were so many pieces to this puzzle. And I really only understood one piece, got educated and learned myself several of those pieces like fundraising and being the CEO of a company, having never worked in one myself. Um, and then I was able to attract and hire individuals who knew how to do everything else, experts in their own domain who understood manufacturing in China and logistics and customer care and whatever the role was. So tip number one is you really don't need to know everything. And, and frankly, there's very few things you do need to know because you can bring on the people that matter to do the job. Yeah. Number two is do not let your own thoughts of not being good enough or not accomplishing enough hold you back. We are all amazing, capable creatures, but we are held back by the stories in our own mind. You know, the stories that say, oh, you know, we shouldn't take the risk because, or people will think this of us, or what if it just doesn't work out? And so it's normal for those thoughts to be there. But the person who becomes a successful entrepreneur is the person who is able to, able to overcome those thoughts, who is not held back by them, the person who takes the step and moves forward despite the thoughts and fears in their mind and body. Yeah. And number three is lead with inspiration. So you may not know most of the things that you need to know to do this, totally fine. But if you have an inspiring vision and you're able to articulate it, and that inspiring vision is going to make the world better in some way, people will want to come along and join you and follow you. 
and work with you and work for you and bring this vision to life together. So the most successful entrepreneurs are those that are able to see a vision that the world needs, that people agree is going to be good for the world and inspire people to come along with them. Nice. I love that. Um, so I have don't, number one, you don't need to know everything. Number two, do not let your negative thoughts hold you back. And number three, let uh, lead with inspiration and let your vision inspire your audience. And I have to say that as you said those things, um, as, as silly or interesting as it sounds, I feel like if your uh, device muse could speak, it would say that's exactly what it does. Oh, thank you. So, yeah, I think that you've, you've got an attunementship with, with what your craft and, and, and your knowledge have all developed in this embodiment of the device. Um, and we are out of time today, Ariel, but I really want to say I appreciate you taking the time. I know everyone is at once available and incredibly busy, you know, during this time of um, stay at home. And so I want to say thank you so much for all of your knowledge and time today. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to share it. Much appreciated. Absolutely. And for those of you listening, we've been speaking with Arielle Garten. She's the founder of Muse. You can locate it at www.choosemuse.com. And until we speak again next time, remember to always bet on yourself. Sláinte. 